guess I'll start over again in case you didn't hear me. I was in Israel a couple months ago. It was a teaching tour um, for a couple weeks with the old school that I was with. Um, fantastic trip. And the whole point was just understanding the culture in which Jesus lived and taught and did his ministry uh, socially, culturally, religiously, economically. What was it like so we can better understand Jesus and his life and his teachings? And there's so many highlights for me, but really what impacted me the most is um, how awesome Jesus is. Being able to read the scriptures again in a fresh new light and just go, man, it just comes alive when you were there. And, uh, and, and a lot of passages that we kind of skim over and we don't think a whole lot about have just kind of come alive to me. And so I want to share one of those passages with you today, and this is from Mark 11. I think uh, sometimes we have this, this idea of Jesus being uh, a nice, soft, tame, you know, meek and mild, fuzzy Jesus who's hugging people all the time and petting sheep. But, you know, this really isn't the picture that the Gospels present of Jesus. You know, and especially we hear this in Mark 11. He walks into the temple and he starts yelling at people and tipping over tables and he's courageous and he's strong. I want you to imagine this scene. It's Canada Day. Thousands are gathered around Parliament Square in Ottawa to celebrate the most important day in Canadian history. Many have taken vacation to be here for this most important occasion. Ottawa is bursting at the seams. There is a buzz in the air. The festival is well on its way and the fireworks are about to start and then it happens. Some poor Bible teacher from rural Saskatchewan walks in and he starts walking through the crowds and he has a group of followers of like-minded rural Saskatchewan farmers behind him and he makes his way through the crowds, tens of thousands of people and he walks into the parliament building and he starts yelling at people. He starts tipping over tables. He starts saying, the system is wrong. The system is broken. It's not working anymore. He even finds Stephen Harper and the Conservatives and he says, I'm going to reconstitute the whole Canadian system and it's going to be reconstituted around me and what I am doing and what I am saying. Well, the crowd, of course, they are divided at how to respond. They've heard of the Saskatchewan redneck and that he's done some really cool things, but challenging the whole system, now that's just going way too far for many people. Others, deep down inside, they know that the system is deeply broken and that there needs to be a change, and that maybe this guy has some answers, and he's up to something good. Well, the authorities, they're not pleased. As you can imagine, the RCMP, they hop on their horses, and they're ready to go in and do battle and arrest this guy and his followers. They want to arrest him. But the crowds are really starting to gather around him, and they can't do it in daybreak, in daylight. So they're going to wait till night. They're going to wait till this man... Is, is away and, is, and the crowds are gone and, the, and his followers are distracted and they're going to come in and they're going to arrest him. And they're going to get this loud-mouthed, crazy teacher who's causing all of this ruckus. This modern-day rendition, it doesn't even come close to capturing the magnitude of what Jesus did that day when he walks into the temple and he challenges the entire system. And again, I think sometimes we, we, uh, we kind of skim over passages like this and we don't really understand the full magnitude of what is going on there. And so this morning, I want to give some context to this event by trying to understand what the temple is, what it represents, and what Jesus really was trying to say when he went in there and did what he did and suggest for you this morning that it has huge implications for us today. And so I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be doing a lot in Scripture this morning. So would you turn with me to 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, verse 26? 
Um, in order to understand the temple, we've got to go back to the beginning. So we are going to go back to um, the first temple. Now, the first temple is built by Solomon. Solomon is David's son. Israel is at the height of its power. It's, it's, it's extended its territory to the largest place it's ever been. It is rich. It is powerful. They've just come off the greatest king, King David. Now his son is on the throne, and he's built this magnificent temple for God. And this is his inauguration prayer. Now, this temple was built in 9th century BC, so about 800 years before Christ um, is when the temple was built. And so Solomon prays this prayer uh, to God about what he wants this temple to represent and to be. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 26. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So Solomon recognizes that God cannot fully dwell in the temple, but what he does ask is that his name will be there, and that his eyes will be there, that this will be the place where the presence of God is represented on earth. This is why, the, this is why when the Jews pray, they always face towards Israel. And if you're in Israel, you face towards Jerusalem, and if you're in Jerusalem, you face towards the temple, because that is the place that represents the physical presence of God here on earth. There's a few things that we would think of that happens in the temple. The temple is the place where there's worship, where there's constant prayers taking place. The temple is also the place where there are sacrifices on behalf of the people. So the temple represents redemption and forgiveness. There's another specific function of the temple that we may not often think of. I want you to, same chapter, chapter 8, verse 41 to 43. And this is Solomon's heart for what he also wants the temple to be. He says, As the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So Solomon recognizes that this temple is to be a mission to the nations, to the foreigners. This is not just a temple for the Hebrew people. This is a temple for the world. And God's presence dwells here, and then it's supposed to spread first through the Israelite people and then into the world beyond, into the nations beyond. Remember in the Mark passage, Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is one of the things that made Jesus really angry. They were setting up and selling things in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the foreigners were supposed to come and be able to connect with God and sense his presence and be drawn to him. Well, what's God's reaction to this? 1 Kings 9, verse 3. God answers Solomon's prayer. He says, The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So God honors Solomon's prayer. His eyes and his heart will be there. This is the presence of God among the nations. And this is why we read in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 138. I could pick a lot of Psalms, but I'm going to pick this one. I will bow towards your holy temple 
and praise your name for your love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The temple was a representation of God's love, of God's faithfulness, and of his glory. This is where praise and worship and prayers were directed. This is where God is. This is his divine presence on earth, the temple. And the temple is also a sign to the Israelites that God's presence is to be spread out to the nations, that that God is for everyone. His redemptive purposes are for everyone. Well, what happened? Today the first temple doesn't stand anymore. It was destroyed. Solomon's temple is no longer there. The Israelites lost their purpose. They lost their identity. They were meant to be a people set apart, holy, to show the nations around them who God is. And they lost that call and they started mixing up religions and, and bringing in other things and not, and not honoring God. And they're sent into exile. The Babylonians come in. They destroy the temple in 586 and the Israelites are sent into exile. This is what the prophets are talking about. The prophets, the message of the prophets is very much, you are not doing your job. You are meant to be a light and salt and a city on a hill and you're not doing your job. You're not representing me to the nations. And the temple's destroyed in 586. And this is the end of the first temple period. Well, we know that this isn't the end of the story. Seventy years later, the Hebrews are allowed to return to their land. And they are brought back, and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt a smaller version of the temple. This is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. It's the second temple period, the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the temple. And then we enter into the second temple period. Once again, we have the sign and the symbol of God's presence on earth. And the second temple underwent various renovations until Herod the Great came around. You'll recognize that name. Herod, this is the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus. This is the same Herod in the first century who uh, heard that the king of Jews was born and he tried to kill all the boys under two years old. Herod was very rich, very powerful, and very arrogant. And he wanted to build the greatest temple around, and he did. So he did this massive renovation on this temple. It was one of the most opulent temples ever built. The courtyard was lined with white marble walls. Massive stone columns lined the perimeter, holding up the giant porches. The temple walls were covered with sheets of gold that nearly blinded approaching visitors. First century historian Josephus, this is what he writes of the gold in the temple. And I quote, It reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who tried to look at it were forced to turn away. It seemed in the distance like a mountain covered in snow, for any part not covered in gold was dazzling white. This is an amazing scene. When I went into Jerusalem, we were driving over the hill, and any hill that you come into, you drive in and you see Jerusalem, and it's literally built on a hill. And I, can't, I was trying to imagine the pilgrims walking up, and they get to the top of the hill and they see Jerusalem. They see the city on the hill. And in the center of the city is the temple, and the temple is at the highest part of the city. And on the top of the temple, it was covered with gold, so I can't imagine walking, walking up as a pilgrim and seeing the gold just like dazzling white. And this is the representation of God's presence on earth. It was a magnificent building. And this was the temple during Jesus' day. This is the temple that Jesus was dedicated as a child. When Jesus got lost, you'll remember for a couple days, his mother came back to the temple and he was there hanging out with the rabbis, learning and teaching. This is the temple where Jesus constantly went out to festivals. And this is the temple where the events of Mark 11 took place. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this temple and then I'm going to show you some pictures. Uh, here's some facts about the temple at that time in the first century during Jesus' day. Three times a year, Jews from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate in this temple. 
Jerusalem was about 60,000 people. Um, that was the population. It would more than triple during these festivals. Everyday sacrifices would take place at the temple on behalf of the people's sins. Incense would fill the sky, choirs would sing, and people would be constantly praying and worshipping. The priests would enter the most holy place and offer prayers of worship. Even Jewish politics took place in the temple. The temple was everything. This important Jewish literature, and everyone would have um, believed this. Let me read it about what they believe about the temple. As the navel is set in the center of the human body, so is the land of Israel, the navel of the world. Situated in the center of the world, and Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel, and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem, and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary, and the ark in the center of the holy place, and the foundation stone before the holy place, because from it the world was founded. For the Hebrew mind, for the Jew, this was the center of the world. It was the temple. There's this rock, and on the rock is where the ark is, and in the ark is where the Holy of Holies is, and the Holy of Holies is the center of the temple, and the temple is the center of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the center of Israel, and it's the center of the world. This is so significant for the Hebrew mind. This is the center of the world. This is where it all begins. We have no modern-day equivalent. We can't even fathom really the importance of what this building would have represented back then. Well, the second temple didn't last very long after Herod had renovated it. Uh, the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD, only 40 years after Jesus, and it's never been rebuilt. Today, there's only remnants of its previous glory. I'm going to show you some pictures of that. And on the location of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place for the Jews, today stands a Muslim mosque. So let me show you a couple pictures here before we move on just to mercy into this. So this is a model scale of Jerusalem in uh, the Israel Museum. You can see it's fairly large based on the people here. This is the temple. Uh, they figured it was about one-sixth of the city. So we're talking like Fairview. If you look at Nelson, it was a really massive structure. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, was walled as all cities were, and it was, it was a fairly large city in the empire at the time. So this is the temple. Uh, close up of the temple, this is the outer courts. This is where Jesus would have walked in and turned tables around. This is the Holy of Holies right here that was lined with gold. And this is the holy place right here where only the priests could go. And the Holy of Holies is where they believe the physical, tangible presence of God dwelt. Only the high priest could go into this place and only once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation. And it was uh, separated with a curtain, which you will recall when Jesus was crucified, that curtain was ripped into two, symbolizing that we no longer need the divide. Okay, so this is, um, this is today. This is the Wailing Wall. This is basically what's left standing of Herod's temple. Um, this is the wall, original from first century, built by Herod. Uh, Wailing Wall is the most holy place for Jews today. They come here and they mourn the fall of the temple and uh, ask for the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, here's original foundation stones of Herod's temple. Magnificent, unbelievable how they got it in there. There's the size of some of the rocks. You can see these are massive, massive rocks. Um, they'd bring these in, they'd ha have a whole, um, a whole bunch of oxen carrying these in and the stone would be, have, have two wheels attached to it and that's how they'd bring it in and build the temple. And so these are original. 
Uh, this is a backup view of the Wailing Wall right here, and on the top here is where the Temple Mount would have been. And as you can see here, the, the Muslim Mosque on top of where the Holy of Holies would have been at the time. And there's the Muslim Mosque. This was built in 700 AD, so it's a fairly old building as well. It's, uh, it's quite beautiful as well. Um, so, some of the leftovers of Roman architecture on the top of the Temple Mount. Back to the scale, this is some of the various entrances into the temple. This is called the Robinson Archway. This is what's left of the Robinson Archway. You can see it would have come out here and uh, landed here on the foundation. Back to the model, here's the stairs, the main entrance into the temple. Uh, this is where many of the teachers would teach, and so Jesus for sure would have done a lot of his teaching on the temple steps as people were coming in. Uh, this is what's left of it, excavated, and here's me sitting on the original temple steps. Uh, up here, these have been rebuilt, but these are actually original first century steps. And, oh, that picture didn't turn out. This is um, the entrance. Obviously, it is... Uh, sealed off, but this was the, the triple door entrance into the Temple Mount. And here is a picture from the Mount of Olives of modern-day Jerusalem. This is the remnants of the Temple Wall. would have gone all the way over here. And this is the Temple Mount right here, and the Wailing Wall would have been right over here. So this is modern-day Jerusalem. Quite a fascinating place. But just to give you some context to what we're talking about here, um, so I want to I talk about Jesus now and some of the things that he said now that we understand the significance of the temple and uh, everything that it meant and reflected to the Jewish mindset. So we'll start with our, with our passage in Mark uh, 11. He walks into the temple court and he's yelling at people and he's tipping over tables and he says the system is broken. At day camp, we had day camp a couple weeks ago in Nelson and I was telling the kids, I was telling them that, that Jesus... Is, is God's messenger and telling them that Jesus is God's son and that he loves them and that he's a representation of God's love. And one of the kids put up his hand and he says, why did they kill him? So I had to tell all these 70 kids why they had to kill Jesus. And my answer was, because Jesus said some things they didn't like. And that really is the reason. Jesus said a lot of things that they didn't like. And this was the beginning of the end for Jesus. He walks into the temple and he does this. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the beginning of the end. Now everyone's rallying around trying to arrest him and it's only going to take a couple days and he's going to be crucified. He says some things that are quite offensive. And you can imagine. Jesus walks into the center of their universe and he says, it's broken and I'm going to reconstitute the entire thing around me. Matthew 12, 6, this is an unbelievable statement. He says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Can you imagine hearing that as a Jew? Somebody greater than the temple? The temple's everything. This is the representation of God's presence here on earth. And Jesus comes in and says, someone greater is here. And it's a person. How could Jesus, a poor Jewish peasant rabbi, walk in and say something like this? Can you imagine how incredibly offensive that would have been? John 2, this is John's version of Jesus clearing the temple. And they ask him, what sign will you give us so you have the authority to do this? And he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he's spoken of was his body. Isn't that amazing? The temple he's spoken of was his body. Jesus 
reconstitutes the entire notion of temple and says, I am the new temple. Everything that the temple represented, I now represent. I take on myself. The last passage is here, Matthew 26. We're at the trial and they're trying to accuse him of something. And this is why it's the beginning of the end for Jesus, because this is the accusation that really got him crucified. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then in Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and they're still taunting him. And they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And of course, we know the rest of the story. He does. He does come down and he rebuilds it in three days. Jesus ushers in a new age and we have now entered into the third temple period. In these passages, Jesus reconstitutes the entire notion of temple. The divine reality of God is no longer a building, it is him. He is the very representation of everything that the temple was meant to represent. Forgiveness no longer happens through the sacrifices in the temple, forgiveness happens through Jesus. Worship no longer happens in the temple. True worshipers now worship in spirit and in truth. And who's the truth? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. Right? The temple is no longer God's means of mission to the nations. Jesus is. Jesus is the new means of mission. We are now under the new covenant. Jesus has changed everything. But the message has stayed the same. God is still present with us. God still cares deeply for humanity. And he longs for the whole earth to be filled with his presence. He's still forgiving. He's still restoring. It's still about redemption. He's still receiving forgiveness from us, or worship from us. And he's still pursuing humanity. But the medium has changed. It's no longer what's going on in the temple. It's what's going on in Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And his church, which has become the new Israel. Which really leads us to the end here. We cannot leave our study here. Because there's the next part, right? Jesus ascends into heaven. It says in Hebrews that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus leaves us. So now what? And you might have been wondering this whole time, how is this actually relevant for me today? We don't have temples. We're not in Jerusalem. Suggests to you the implications are absolutely huge. If we get this, it will change everything. It will change it will change our nation. It will change our church. If we understood the magnitude of the implications of this for us, it will absolutely transform everything. We have to ask ourselves the question, now, who or what takes the place of the temple? Who or what carries on now the new mission of God? How is the third temple period to continue without the physical presence of Jesus? Now, I cannot do this application justice. I have tried and I can't. And so, this is what I did in Nelson. I, I gave them 10 minutes. I said, you know, look at these passages because now we're getting into the New Testament and, and uh, let, the, let God speak to you. Let the scriptures speak to you about who is the new temple and what this means for us today. We have communion today, so I'll give you five minutes, but you, you're not going to get to all of these, but grab one or two passages and look it up. Talk about it with your neighbor and just go, how does this impact me? How does this change how I might live? And uh, I hope you get to one or two now and that you'll be able to carry on uh, later on today or for the rest of the week because this is so significant. So I'll give you five minutes. We'll play some music. You can, it doesn't need to be quiet time. You can talk with your neighbor about it and then we'll enter into communion.